Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blackware Intelligence Podcast. Hope you're all doing well. Before we get into the show, let me tell you a little bit about our sponsor, FTX US. FTX US, one of the largest crypto companies in the United States, is the safest, most regulated way to buy and sell Bitcoin, Ethereum, and other digital assets. You might have heard of FTX from their partnerships with Tom Brady, Steph Curry, or their recent Super Bowl commercial with Larry David. With FTX, you can trade crypto with up to 85% lower fees than top competitors. There are no fixed minimum fees, no ACH transaction fees, and no withdrawal fees. You can also use the FTX app to buy your favorite NFTs with no gas fees, supporting both Ethereum and Solana blockchains. Use promo code BLOCKWARE1 or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to earn free crypto on every trade over $10. Again, that's BLOCKWARE1 on ftx.us or go to ftx.blockwareintelligence.com to get started today. Now let's get into the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Someone I've been looking forward to talk to for a long time, Lynn Alden. Lynn, thanks so much for taking the time. I know you're in uh, very high demand these days, so we appreciate you coming on the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. Happy to be here. Uh, first of all, I want to start with some, you know, I guess current events and, uh, you know, obviously the last few days in, in crypto, the, the kind of the talk of the town has been the Luna Foundation guard um, and, you know, the, the UST peg breaking down. Can For listeners, maybe anybody who, um, you know, hasn't heard about this or you know, maybe anyone who just doesn't really understand the dynamics of, of everything that's happened over the last, you know, call it 72 hours. You kind of walk us through, um, you know, what, what happened and, and, you know, what caused that meltdown and as well as like, how does the, how does the uh, Terra protocol work? Yeah, so the Terra ecosystem is basically based around algorithmic stable coins. And those are very different from collateralized stable coins. And so for collateralized stable coins like Tether or USDC, uh, they they hold a certain amount of assets uh, that can be redeemed, uh, you know, for those tokens. Basically, you, you're at least at least supposedly backed one to one by assets. Whereas in an algorithmic stablecoin, they use software to try to make a token worth a dollar, even though it's not actually backed up by any dollars. Right? It's just kind of this artificial mechanism to try to maintain it at the value of a dollar. And as one might expect, those have been fraught with failure. Uh, you're kind of the mechanism is you're trying to be like an emerging market central bank, except without capital controls and without an economy to tax. It's kind of like this based on this first in first out uh, and a really shaky set of, of kind of, you know, economic principles that can only last so long. Uh, and so the way that that worked is, you know, if, if, if their stable coin was below the peg, it was, it was below a dollar, you could, you could basically arbitrage that uh, in order to get that back up using their other token, which is Luna. And so basically what it does is it pushes the volatility over to Luna. And as long as their stablecoin demand is increasing, it, 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 you know, it also increases the value of Luna over time generally. Uh, but the problem is that the demand for that was artificial. It was based on artificially high yields from various VC incentives and things like that. Basically, it wasn't a sustainable organic demand. It was kind of this you know, you can call it a Ponzi scheme. It's, it's, it's not really far off. Basically, it's, it's this kind of front-loaded, unsustainable type of, of thing to draw capital in. And, you know, those are vulnerable to attack. Uh, even without an attack, basically, UST uh, surplus yields were going to dry up. Uh, and so basically, we saw a, a run on the bank. Uh, you know, basically, people started to see that it was failing, and they all wanted out at the same time. And so Luna's equity was brought down to basically zero. You lose 99 percent plus of the value it goes to zero uh and the peg breaks and so this was something like you know if you combine luna and and their stable coins it was it was nearly a 60 billion dollar uh you know protocol and that was wiped out in a matter of days uh and you know a, a challenge is that they you know they i think they saw the writing on the wall they were worried about the possibility of a death spiral so they started uh buying other assets ahead of time uh kind of like an emerging market holding treasuries or gold as a reserve currency that they can sell if they want to support their currency. And so they bought Bitcoin and then they had to sell that into the market uh, or, you know, specifically they were loading it to market makers to do, you know, various ways to try to defend the peg. Uh, and so they had to sell Bitcoin into a weak market. And now there's contagion because multiple funds had exposure to it. You know, this was kind of like a, a Lehman Brothers moment for the crypto space. And, you know, if we zoom out 
for a while. So there are a number of people warning about this. Uh, I, I warned about it in, in the month ahead. And if we zoom out of why this happens over time, right? If you look at the at business cycles, right? So, and I've shared this with you before that the PMI cycle, so purchasing managers index, uh, you know, that's kind of a gauge of, of is economic growth accelerating or is it beginning to slow down? And it's not whether it's growing or shrinking, it's whether it's accelerating or decelerating. Although if, if the number gets low enough, it becomes outright shrinking. And what you generally see is that during accelerating periods, that's when liquidity is flowing. It's easy to get credit. Often the Federal Reserve is pumping money into the market. Uh, you have these, these you know, economic booms in the United States and many other parts of the world. And anyone with like a narrative can sell these tokens, these unregistered securities and off, offshore regulatory gray zones, right? They can, they can just pull in capital. And when you have those declining PMI environments, liquidity being withdrawn, you know, it's like the tide going out and anyone who's, you know, swimming naked gets exposed, or at least a lot of them. And we generally see these boom bust cycles. Uh, and so that that's essentially what we're seeing now is that after a big giant rise up in PMIs and economic growth and liquidity, we're now getting a pullback in all those things. And so all these things that were kind of based on first in, first out, Ponzi-nomics, uh, you know, the vast majority of that is just getting cleared away. And unfortunately, that's a very large percentage of the, of the crypto space. Yeah, for sure. Do you think this attack was nefarious in the sense of, you know, someone purposely tried to take down the peg? Or you know, do you think of something where it's just low hanging fruit and someone was going to do it if someone else didn't step on, you know, step in and do it? There's been a this conspiracy theory circulating about Citadel and BlackRock, and, and they both come out and denied that they had any involvement. But do you think this was, you know, perhaps a, an entity or group of, of large entities in the crypto space that saw an opportunity? Or do you think this was just, you know, uh, you know, just happened because of kind of the backdrop of weak price action, you know, weak macro environment, everything you just described, and it was just kind of inevitably going to happen at some point? So I think if something can be attacked, it will be attacked, right? If, if you can make money from attacking it, uh, it will be. And that's the problem with algorithmic stablecoins. Essentially, their whole defense playbook is public. So, you know, if, if you if there's a military and you know exactly how they're going to respond, you would know exactly how to attack. And, you know, attacking this peg in a bull market would be a lot harder, right? Because confidence in it would be high. Uh, whereas attacking it in this kind of, you know, low liquidity tide going out environment, that, that's basically when they have openings that, that you can do an attack. And so, I, you know, evidence does suggest there's a, a well-capitalized intentional attack. You know, I don't, I don't know for sure who did it, obviously. Um, but, you know, I think in the long run, this was inevitable. I think if this didn't happen now, so for example, when I was warning about this potentially happening, I didn't expect it was going to happen, you know, in mid-May, right? That wasn't, you know, it was actually earlier than I would have guessed because you can't you can't predict when an attack like that's going to happen. It was more like, you know, if you're predicting a forest fire, you can't say when lightning is going to strike a tree and start a forest fire, but you can you can warn when there's conditions uh, that would make a forest fire likely or risky to happen, and that's essentially the state they were in. Basically, it was a a very risky situation. Over the long run, if, if there was no specific attack, I think what would have happened is that, you know, demand for UST, their, their stablecoin would have dried up as the yields dried up in Anchor. Uh, and eventually, I think you would have gotten a more a slower bank run until it turned out into a crisis like this. So instead, we kind of ripped the bandit off, got it out ahead of time. Um, and so, you know, I think it was inevitable one way or another. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And kind of going off of that, Obviously, like they've had to sell off some of their, I mean, all of their Bitcoin reserves, and it's it's been wild. I, I posted the chart yesterday of like, um, it just shows like their their wallet holdings, and it's wild. It's just like you know, stairs up, elevator straight down. Um, but aside from just like the you know shorter term price impact of on BTC, which you know I think it, it it's caused like some short term drawdown in price, but BTC can absorb this, right? It's the most liquid asset in this in this crypto ecosystem. Um, but what, what I think is yet to be seen is some of like the uh, contagion from this event. I mean, obviously you described like this is a multi-billion dollar or was a multi-billion dollar protocol. And, you know, there's probably numerous funds and projects alike that have heavy exposure to both Luna and UST. Um, so, you know, how do you think through that? And, and, you know, do you think we'll see more second order, third order effects coming out of this over, that will emerge in the crypto space over the coming days or weeks? I think so. I think basically we saw the kill shot and now the industry's got to bleed out a lot of the malinvestment and that, you know, that already happened pretty quickly. But I think, you know, if you look through 
bear markets, generally you you know you start to see Bitcoin dominance rise, uh, especially say Bitcoin X stablecoin dominance. So so put the collateralized stablecoins aside, Bitcoin compared to all the other all the other cryptos. Uh, I think basically we had you know over a trillion dollars of malinvestment in the space, uh, and that's basically going to get sorted out, or at least a lot of it's going to get sorted out in the coming days, weeks, and months. Um, and you know, basically, it's it's natural that every now everything's being tested, right? So something blew up, everything's being tested. They're testing the tether peg, they're testing this, they're testing that. We're going to see which funds didn't make it through. Uh, and you know, when there's kind of industry-wide liquidity being withdrawn, you know, Bitcoin can hold up among the best because it's liquid and because it's you know it's not having any sort of technical issues like many of these other things are. Um, but you know, even that gets pulled down in price because. You know, if you're outside capital, if you're not in the crypto space and you're thinking about, you know, investing in Bitcoin, this is not the moment where a lot of outside funds are going to be like, you know what, we should buy Bitcoin. Now, maybe there'll be really forward thinking ones that say, hey, look, it's all on sale. We've been we've been waiting to get in. This is the time. Uh, but basically, the kind of the normie finance is sitting there just kind of watching this play out and everybody's kind of risking off. And so it's, I think it has to just, you know, there's more contagion uh, likely to happen, although, you know, we might have seen. The bottom in Bitcoin, I have no idea. Um, you know, my base case is that Bitcoin will go on to make new all-time highs eventually, and I think a lot of crypto projects won't. I think they they have one or two cycles in them, and then, you know, they they played out their story, and then it's on to whatever the next narrative is. Yeah, for sure. And like you, you had kind of touched on the potential, you know, uh, I guess delay and in some investment from people after like you know this this big event that is probably causing you know some some hesitancy to, to get involved in the space uh do you think also with regulators you'll continue to just see the drum get beat now i mean like the elizabeth warrens of of the of the world have to be like salivating over this event uh from a political standpoint i mean, I, I saw this morning that uh janet yellen had come out and, and made some comments about uh the the risks of stable coins obviously talking about ust but also had mentioned about this slight DPEG that we saw in USDT, although that's happened numerous times throughout the years that it's existed. But I guess, how do you how do you think through the uh, the effects on on what regulators are going to be doing based off of this event over the coming months and years? I do think this will accelerate regulation because a lot of retail investors got hurt. I mean, they were told by people on YouTube uh, to buy Luna and things like that. Uh, you even had a lot of content creators that themselves were like they revealed they were 100% Luna, which is you know, they kind of like ate too much of their own cooking. Um, and, you know, you know, VCs are hurt, but then also VCs were selling these things to the public, marketing these to the public. So I think, you know, regulators are going to go after some of the major exchanges. You know, they, they do things like they, you know, whenever there's like a spike in enthusiasm for a token, they fuel it. They start advertising for dog money or, you know, whatever whatever the token of the day is, they they kind of funnel retail into it right at the top. And, you know, a lot of these pass the Howey test, so they look like securities. Uh, they could be regulated as such. Um, uh, you know, outside of Bitcoin, it doesn't pass the Howey test, maybe a few others, right? There's a number of them that don't really pass it, but a lot of them do. And, you know, they've kind of been in this gray zone where they don't do their, their initial coin offerings in the United States anymore. Uh, but the exchange is still marketed them uh, once they're already sold to us buyers and so i think that you know that could that practice could get more scrutiny uh and you know even i think a lot of people don't know the difference between different stable coins right so they see one stable coin blow up an algorithmic stable coin and then they you know use that to criticize the collateralized ones but i also think over time we're going to see more regulation on what you can use as collateral uh for a collateralized stable coin and you know one way i would describe that is you know if you look at so it, there's, there's kind of two models you can go with one is if you have as many assets as you have liabilities, so you're one-to-one, -one, then you better have all of your assets in risk-free uh, investments because there's no margin of error there. If you lose any percentage of your investments, uh, you're now no longer fully backed. So if you're roughly one-to-one -one backed you know, and you're supposed to be dollars, uh, you should have the whole fund in dollars and T-bills, basically liquid uh, dollar-based assets. Um, now, the other option is to go with, like with a bank model. So banks, you know, their assets are a variety of different risks. So they have things like cash and treasuries, but they also have things like loans and, and corporate bonds and things like that. But because of that risk, they have to have a capital buffer. They have to have more assets than they have liabilities so that even if they lose some of their assets, they can still meet their liabilities. And so we, 
some stable coins have operated in that weird zone where they're one to one backed. Uh, but or you know that, that at least that's what the you know the the accounting firms say they're one to one backed. But then they're not a hundred percent backed in risk free capital, and and so that that kind of creates systemic risk. And we've seen over time, stable coins have kind of shifted towards having a greater percentage of their assets in cash and T bills, and many of them have gone a hundred percent cash and T bills. And I think that's that's kind of the trend where regulators are going to look unfavorably towards stable coins that have any degree of of you know. Uh, risk in their in their asset books. It seems like you know with, with all the regulation coming about into the DeFi space, it, it's almost like a mirrored version of the current system in that sense of how centralized everything is and how much regulation is coming into the space. Do you think there's a possibility for DeFi to just become a completely mirrored version of, or you know, basically throwing lipstick on a pig of of the current fiat system that we already have? Uh, I guess like how do you how do you kind of uh, you know look look at the, the the DeFi system as a whole, but but moving forward, kind of the evolution of it in terms of how decentralized it could be, and and do you think it will even exist in like five or ten years from now? I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on, but it's just a question of like you know, are is it actually going to be decentralized, and is it just going to end up as a you know, basically the this a new version of the same thing we already have going, if that makes sense. So chain analysis did some analysis a, a while back and showed that the vast majority of DeFi volume is like institutional and large whales, right? So it, it you know it's kind of a mirror of the existing system almost. And I don't view any of it as, as kind of being over the event horizon in terms of how decentralized it is. Uh, you know, to some extent, decentralization is a spectrum, but at the end of the day, if, if regulators really go after you, you're either decentralized and can withstand a regulatory attack or you can't. Um, and I think the you know the vast majority of it is not over that critical threshold. And so they're all, you know, prone to being regulated, which kind of puts them in the same sort of situation, uh, you know, as we see with the existing system. Uh, and so I, I do think that there's there's interesting code being developed. There's interesting use cases out there. I think decentralized liquidity is useful. Decentralized exchanges are useful. I think you know a problem is that, you know, it like when they when they started inventing the car, for example, they would put like reins on it because people just kind of had this old way of thinking. Right, and it's like you want to like you want to have like aspects of the prior system, like horses, in your new system. Just you don't like change everything at once. And I think a lot of the concept we're seeing now around like leveraging rehypothecation uh, yields that are not really yields. A lot of that is kind of like reins on a car. It's like an old way of thinking about it. Uh, and I think that you know, I, the way I, I keep coming back to, I think Bitcoin's innovation. Most other things are kind of like fleas riding on its coattails. Uh, I do think collateralized stable coins are an innovation. They they basically took some of that that technology and they so for example, if you are in Lebanon or Argentina, uh, you know things like USDC or USDT can actually be perceived as being safer than storing dollars in your in your bank or your local currency because in those countries, obviously holding local currency is very risky, and if they hold dollars in the bank, they they get confiscated. That that's happened a number of times in a lot of these countries, and so ironically, holding this dollar-pegged asset from a foreign entity is is you know in many cases rightly perceived as safer, and it has less volatility than than Bitcoin for people that you know you you can't have volatility over a three to six month period for their for their income and their short-term savings and their spending, uh, and so you know outside of Bitcoin and and well collateralized stable coins, you know I think a lot of the a lot of what we're seeing elsewhere is malinvestment, even though. You know, I think some of it eventually can make its way onto, you know, future platforms. For sure, I want to pivot over to price action, and I, you know, I made a post on Twitter, on Twitter, and I said, "What do you want me to ask, Lynn?" And I would say thirty to forty percent of the questions were just when bottom. So I'm not going to ask you that, um, but I will ask you, you know, what what are some of the areas, either from just a pure price action standpoint, maybe it's moving averages or you know, on chain price levels, like. What are what are some of the areas that you find really attractive and would would say are deep value for BTC as as we kind of move into the the mid you know mid to upper twenty k areas? I, I think this mid twenty area is is super deep value, right? So when you look at things like dormancy flow or like you know uh, just all, all a bunch of different on chain indicators are kind of deep value. Now at, you know at the end of the day you can have these wicks that go well below that if there's kind of like liquidity crises. Um, but overall, uh, I think we're kind of in that range where I don't know exactly where the bottom is going to be. Obviously, uh, I think you're in the phase where if you're dollar cost averaging or you're layering in 
uh, purchases, uh, I think this is a good place to do it. Uh, I think trying to catch some sort of like micro bottom is is kind of a, a fool's game. Uh, you know, some things I'm watching, for example, I was watching the tether peg because it's kind of a sign of liquidity, right? If that peg is struggling, in addition to whatever concerns people might might have about the quiet of the collateral, it's a, it's a liquidity sign, right? So liquidity is being sucked out of the space so fast. Uh, so it's hard for anything to rally. And when you start to see that kind of recover to the extent that it recovers, uh, you know, that's kind of a sign that maybe the worst is behind us. And, you know, some projects will continue to bleed out, but maybe the, the highest quality things like Bitcoin, they might already have their capitulation in. Uh, and so it, it's hard to say for sure, but I think that, you know, anywhere in the, in with a two handle, you're basically getting into kind of deep value range. Uh, and it, then it just comes down to managing your own risk bucket. Right. So, so a lot of people think they can withstand volatility and then, you know, when it actually happens, they realize they can't. Uh, and so I think it's important to have the position size to make sense to you so that you can have, you know, unless you're an active trader, so that you can have a three to five year, you know, position and let that play out, uh, you know, according to your thesis or not. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I'm in some of these different, like, you know, trading groups, if you will, different like crypto native trading guys. And you know, they were saying last night, you know, well, the one thing you want to look for is when spreads blow out and the exchanges start breaking. That's usually a, a time of, of, you know, at least a, a local bottom. So, yeah, it's, it's been interesting. You, you, you started to see some of that. I'm still looking for some stuff like, you know, three-month basis to go into backwardation, you know, Coinbase going down. Those are usually some, like, you know, low-hanging fruit signals that we're, we're reaching at least a, a local bottom. But, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think, like, this, this you know, low to mid 20K area, is extreme value for BTC. I mean, you've got realized price at 24K, 200 week moving average, I believe at like 22, 23K. So, I mean, it's a question of, you know, in, in five years, will it make a difference if you bought at 26K or 25K versus, you know, exactly at, at the 200 week at 22K? Um, you know, I, I tend to not think so. And I agree. I think this is like a good time to, to dollar cost average more heavily than, than perhaps maybe you traditionally have. Uh, I, I want to move on a, a little bit to your thoughts on on-chain analytics. So you and I have, have talked a little bit in the in DMs about this, and we kind of you know go back and forth with ideas. How do you think through on-chain? Uh, you know, I think it's been interesting because this has been the first like real bull cycle for BTC. I guess I guess you could say full cycle now that we're back in a bear market um, for on-chain to really um, you know be used on in, in a real-time basis with you know the full slew of metrics that were created in the in the you know 2018 2019 bear market, so uh, how do you think through on chain the evolution of it, and I guess how do you implement it into the weighing of your analysis for the for the Bitcoin market? So with any market, you kind of want to know who the who the buyers and the sellers are to the extent that it's possible, right? And so with Bitcoin, because we have that on chain analysis, and I'm not talking about identities, but talking about kind of like you know the different types of buyers and what they're doing. Right. So what are short term holders doing? What are long term holders doing? What are futures market people doing? So that's, that's separate from on chain. But I think, you know, combining on chain with, you know, any sort of exchange data that's possible or any sort of futures data that's possible uh, kind of gives you a holistic view of what's going on in the market. And I don't really use it as forecasting, but I use it as, you know, kind of like market awareness. You know, it, a lot of people when they get into Bitcoin, they just see a line on a chart. They don't know how the, the technical details work. And by technical, I mean, I'm talking about the actual functioning of the blockchain. They don't know how that works super well. Uh, and then they don't understand who the different buyers and sellers are. And so for them, it's like a scary black box that they don't want to put any capital in. And I think that things like, you know, various types of analysis, like on chain and things like that can provide a little bit more clarity and help people understand what happens with these cycles, right? So I, I like, for example, seeing the percentage of coins that have not moved for a long period of time, uh, you know, what's happening with accumulation addresses versus other types of addresses, uh, because you can see in these in these long term consolidations, you have, you know, weak money flows back into the, the stronger money hands. Right? And that's that's something that a lot of people from other markets can relate to. They, they understand that that dynamic, that psychology there. And so I think it's a good observational tool. Uh, so I, I, I do, for example, in my various macro reports, I'll, 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 when, I, when I have a Bitcoin section, I'll, I'll touch on some of the unique things that are happening in, in on-chain space and some other things like that, even though I'm not, say, you know, making buy or sell recommendations based on what I'm seeing in any sort of specific on-chain metric. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I do think also, as you mentioned, like it definitely needs to be paired with other things. You can't look at solely on chain to come to your conclusion about the market, especially as it just becomes more nuanced and more complex. I think you could have used it back in, you know, 2014, 2015, 2016, when it was just a completely spot driven market. But now there's so many different dynamics uh, affecting price action that, you know, I, I think you're you're walking blindly if you're just looking at solely on chain. And, and it, it's interesting you you phrased it that way that you don't look at it, you know, for like shorter term price predictions, but rather kind of get this broader gauge as to what's going on. Uh, you know, one, one thing you talked about, for example, like dormancy flow, you know, some of these like broader oscillators, I think one way to look at on chain is, you know, for these people that are kind of swinging the cycles, perhaps from these, you know, major points of exuberance, major points of depression, you know, you can look at six, seven, eight of these broader oscillators and look and say, Hey, look, when 80% of these are in the upper 10 percentile or lower 10 percentile, I'm going to start shaving off. Or I'm going to start averaging in more heavily, you know, even, even using it in that sense, I think is, is really beneficial, but it's interesting to, to get your thoughts on that. Um, what else do you think about just your, your Bitcoin market view, uh, what things do you look at? Obviously, macro has been in the driver's seat for months now, so I'm sure that's a very large portion of this. But what different types of you know indicators are you looking at, or, or I guess different forms of analysis? If you had a, a, a tool belt, you know, I would say what what different tools are in that belt? So aside from the Bitcoin specific ones, like on chain, I would say the biggest ones are the macro ones because Bitcoin is now big enough to be a macro asset. Uh, and, and you know, even before even before it was, it was still a liquidity play essentially, uh, in terms of when new capital flows in and flows out, right? So different than the than the people who hardcore understand the underlying technology. In terms of price action, it was always a liquidity play, and now it's increasingly also a macro play, which is it's kind of the same thing but bigger. And so, you know, that I would say so going back to the PMI cycle that I mentioned before, right? So so the world and and let's say specifically the United States. Uh, as a really big Bitcoin market uh, and crypto market in general, goes through these these PMI cycles. These, these it's almost like the heartbeat of economic acceler economic growth acceleration and economic growth deceleration. And you know they vary a little bit, but they're on average about three years. So it looks like a sine wave, uh, and, and each each like full cycles maybe three years. So you have like 18 months of of going up and then 18 months of going down, uh, and most, you know, basically Bitcoin bull runs have happened during rising PMI environments and Bitcoin consolidations and bear markets have happened during declining PMI environments. And it's not perfect. It's not like it bottoms right when the PMI bottoms. In fact, you know, the market's forward looking. So it, it bottoms before PMI bottoms. Um, but you generally get that that kind of big risk on risk off framework. Same thing with liquidity. If you look at what's happening with the global liquidity, it kind of looks like the PMI cycle. Uh, and so, you know, you can kind of apply that and, you know, what people do with that is, is I think, you know, depends on what kind of investor they are. If they're just dollar cost averaging in, they might completely ignore it. Uh, but if they're, you know, when I'm speaking to institutional allocators or things like that, if you're looking for when to take more risk or when to take less risk, if Bitcoin has been blown out and the PMI cycle has already rolled over, that's, you know, a good contrarian time to maybe accelerate your purchases to some extent. Uh, and when you're at the top of a PMI cycle and people are super enthusiastic and liquidity is flowing and Dogecoin's going vertical, you know, that's that's when there's a lot more risk in the market. And maybe, you know, if they're doing leverage, they should pair the leverage back. Uh, you know, maybe they, you know, they can they can make changes to the way that they're, you know, they might want to rebalance depending on what what type of pools of capital they are. And so I, I use that as kind of my primary outlook. And so what we're seeing now is that PMI is still declining. We're at kind of a part of the cycle where maybe Bitcoin could bottom here. Like if you look at the prior cycle, this is kind of where what, what PMI was looking like when it already bottomed. But every cycle is going to be different. So people trying to over uh, match the prior cycle to the current cycle, I think, is, is missing the point of it. It's really just kind of this broad general idea of risk on versus risk off. Um, and another thing is so so. Uh, you know, a lot of attention's on the halving cycle, and I do think that the halving cycle is important. So obviously, if you if you cut new supply in half, that's going to affect the market over time. Um, but you know, so the the halving cycles every four years, the PMI cycles every three years, and pretty much because of luck, those have generally somewhat aligned. Obviously, you have a slight phase shift because one is a slightly longer cycle than the other, uh, but they've generally aligned. Uh, you know, in, in the past few cycles, and it just it slowly gets out of phase over time. 
And so it's hard to set, you know, basically you had kind of a perfect storm each time. So you had rising PMI and a halving, uh, and, and that creates a very strong risk on condition. And, 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 you know, after the PMI rolls over, that's when you get that risk off condition. And so I think a lot of people are maybe still focused on having cycles. I think they should probably become a little less important over time. And it's, you know, focusing on the PMI cycles, I think, can be very useful. And that's, you know, it doesn't mean that it can be a good thing because you don't get locked into this four-year cycle framework, right? So we've seen lengthening cycles. We've seen, you know, maybe it hit lower highs than people thought, including myself. But when you look at the PMI cycle, a lot of that makes more sense. Basically, when you realize it's not entirely driven by the halving cycle, there's, there's other liquidity and macro forces at play that can determine, you know, when Bitcoin ramps up and when it ramps down, uh, you know, when, when, what's happening with global capital around the world. So I think, I think looking at PMI uh, is probably a pretty important thing for, for people to be aware of. That actually segues pretty nicely into the, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about, which is this really heavy correlation we've seen with Bitcoin and just, you know, traditional risk on assets, especially just tech stocks. And I mean, when you just look at something like a correlation coefficient between BTC and the NASDAQ, we reached like an all-time high correlation. I think it was two or three weeks ago. It's sustained at really high levels. So like, do you think as Bitcoin, as you just mentioned, you know, becomes more correlated with broader macro as it gets larger, do you think it just trades more in tune with, with what's going on in macro and, and that correlation with traditional just increases? Or do you think there is a case for potentially decorrelating from traditional assets over time? So years ago, when Bitcoin was a smaller market, the group of people that traded Bitcoin and the group of people that traded every other asset was like two very different groups with minimal overlap. Uh, and so over time, as as Bitcoin reached reached greater levels of adoption, both retail investors and institutional investors, that Venn diagram is kind of moving closer together, where the same people own both types of assets. Um, and so naturally, I think correlation increases in that regard, right? And, and generally, when when you know Bitcoin is a liquidity play and a macro play it's going to follow that kind of risk on risk off things. And so with the stock market during rising PMI environments, you generally see the riskier stocks do pretty well. Uh, and during the declining PMI environment, that's when things like defensive stocks uh, or, or, or gold or bonds uh, generally outperform some of the riskier stocks. Now you always have exceptions, right? So in this declining PMI environment, instead of bonds doing well, bonds sold off because this was the first stagflationary declining PMI environment in a while. So there's always going to be curveballs. And so, you know, a big question I had was how would Bitcoin hold up this time uh, in a stagflationary environment? Because if you're going to have a decoupling, you would think that a stagflationary environment would be a decent time for it. So, you know, if you start to see margin pressure on companies uh, and you see the Fed forced to come back and provide liquidity, I think that could be an environment where Bitcoin decouples favorably from broad equities because you know companies are basically forced to pay higher wages they're forced you know they have all sorts of of uh, struggles with their supply chain shortages things like that uh while bitcoin uh doesn't have margin pressure doesn't have employees to play uh you know things like that and so it, i think it can decouple when you have very specific conditions that are hurting stocks that are not necessarily hurting bitcoin uh so basically if, if liquidity is positive but margins are not great that should be a a de- at least a decent shot of a positive decoupling. Uh, but we're not there at the moment. Right now, we're still seeing liquidity being pulled out. And so you see a lot of correlations go to one. Uh, and so another thing that fed the whole correlation issue is macro because it's been an unusually strong macro environment. So you had you know, you had the COVID crash, then you had the biggest liquidity bazooka we've ever seen. Uh, and so you know the correlation of almost everything went up. Uh, and then as that liquidity bazooka is withdrawn, you see a lot of things roll over together. And so because we had a bigger than normal macro impulse, we have a bigger than normal amount of correlation. And I think over time, that can separate. And, and you know, things can separate in terms of size as well. And so, for example, you can say, okay, Bitcoin and ARK are correlated. But if you look at a five-year chart, Bitcoin has killed ARK in terms of total returns. And that's because over time, one is getting structural adoption and the other one less so. And so you can, you can decouple in terms of timing, or you can just decouple in terms of magnitude where say up days, you do a little bit better, down days, you do a little bit better. And over time, you slowly separate from weaker assets. 
That makes a lot of sense. It almost, and this isn't like a perfect analogy, but in my brain, it, it almost reminds me of that visual that Ray Dalio uses for like the long-term debt cycle, short-term debt cycle, where, as you just mentioned, like in the long-term, the thing that's really driving Bitcoin in a five, 10-year time horizon is this adoption curve. Um, and, and then on the shorter-term time frame, you have some of these things that are driving the shorter-term price action overlaid with that. Uh, no, I think that, that's super interesting. I, I honestly haven't thought of it that way before, so... That's, that's a really interesting framework. Um, kind of tying into that, what do you think about inflation? We had the CPI print uh, earlier this week, came in, I, I believe, at 8.1%, uh, uh, a little higher than some people expected. Uh, some people were expecting we would see, a, a for the first time, a substantially lower CPI print. Um, how do you how do you kind of think through inflation, especially you know heading into the end of the year? Because that's, I think, is, is especially like these forward-looking inflation indicators, I think, are kind of at the forefront of, everyone's expectations for you know what what's going to happen with fed policy so how do you kind of think through inflation moving forward towards the end of the year so monthly inflation has been high for over a year now and when that happens uh you start to kind of peak out in terms of year over year because you no longer have that basically all the base effects wore off uh and so you know let's say a 0.5 percent inflation every month you know over a 12 month period like when that starts to play out, you're going to be much higher year-over-year -year inflation than, than prior because your your baseline is like 0.1 and 0.2% year-over-year inflation. And once you've had a full year of 0.5% month-over-month inflation, if you keep having that monthly inflation, your year-over-year -year inflation actually peaks out. It doesn't mean it goes down. It just means it, it kind of peaks out. Uh, and so you would need to see monthly inflation accelerate in order for year-over-year -year inflation to, to you know keep going up. Uh, and so what we're seeing now is that the supply side is still very problematic. Energy companies are not really producing more energy. Uh, China lockdowns are rippling through the whole global supply chain. Semiconductors are still a problem. Uh, you know, the, the eastern seaboard in the United States is nearly out of diesel, which is catastrophic. Um, you know, fertilizer is still a problem. Basically, there are still structural supply side problems. And I think these are going to persist for a very long time. Um, now, what we're seeing on the other hand is that demand is weakening because stimulus is being withdrawn, right? So when you're printing a lot of money and giving it to people, you know, you could have that more inflationary impulse. And as you pull that away, you know, the, then you're more likely to get economic contraction because, you know, people are forced to pay more, more for their food and energy, and they have to pay less, they have to tighten their belts everywhere else, right? So it's harder for other things to raise prices and you start to get decreased economic activity and shortages. And so one thing that I think could just could make inflation come in not as high as people think is that it can manifest in shortages, right? So shortages are basically a type of inflation that doesn't show up in the numbers. If I want to buy something and I will, let's say I'm willing, you know, let's say, you know, uh, they're out of paper towels and I want to buy some paper towels. And I'm like, I will literally pay 50% above asking price if someone has paper towels to sell and I just can't find them, right? That would have been, a, if I could find them, that would have been a high inflation print. But because I can't get them at all, it just shows up as a shortage. It just shows up as decreased volumes. So I, I tried to buy a car several months back, and they didn't have any of the models I wanted, and I just didn't buy a car. And if they would have said, hey, we have the car. It's 20% above asking. I would have been, yeah, okay. I'm going to I'm gonna have it for a decade anyway, so it doesn't matter. Whereas because I couldn't even make that purchase, it doesn't show up as inflation. It just shows up as decreased economic activity. Uh, and so I think the combination of shortages and inflation are going to continue to various ways, but we're seeing that shift over time because it's no longer that high demand impulse. It's it's supply side scarcity and declining demand. And I think that's eventually going to do some sort of forcing function on either the Fed to reverse course, or we could start to see more targeted fiscal stimulus. You see in Europe, for example, some of them are doing energy subsidies. Uh, and I think we could see something like that in the United States, where you start to see political pressure uh, to, you know, address some of these situations. And, and so that could be, you know, that could increase liquidity in markets. But it, it's basically a very challenging decade going forward, I think, in terms of inflation. Do you think that the stock market declining has had an effect on decreasing demand? I mean, in theory, this makes sense, right? Because you have like this reverse wealth effect. But then at the same time, it's like, well, stocks are mostly held by the you know top one, five percent in the country. So how do you kind of think through the effects as well as, uh, on asset you know prices declining and, and how that kind of translates to a potential like decrease in demand as well on the consumer side? 
Yeah, there's really different variables for different uh, wealth deciles. As, as you point out, you know, people on the bottom don't own the stocks. People in the stocks have very different things that affect them than people on the on the bottom. And so if you're in like the bottom 90 percent, uh, you know, things like food and energy costs uh, affect you greatly. It, it makes you have to spend less elsewhere to make your your monthly budget work. Uh, if you're wealthy, uh, if you're in the top, even just 10 percent, let's let's call it. Uh, you know, the, that reverse wealth effect is really real, right? I mean, basically, their, their whole sentiment has changed around what they're going to what they're going to spend. And they actually they represent the majority of spending. The top 10 percent of people represent the majority of spending, especially on discretionary goods. And so a lot of that, I think, is going to be weaker. Um, and so you have different variables for different markets. We also see that because mortgage uh, rates have gone up a lot, the cost of buying a new home is a lot higher. Right. So, uh, you know, if you have the same priced home and you have a five and a half percent mortgage rate compared to two and a half percent mortgage rate, uh, your monthly payments are a lot higher. Uh, and that also means that fewer people want to move because if they move and sell their home uh, and they've already got a low mortgage rate locked in, when they buy a new home, they're going to be paying a, a higher mortgage rate. And so they either need to buy a smaller house to get the same monthly payment you know, or, or they're going to buy the same size house and get a, a bigger monthly payment. So you start to see kind of reduced mortgage activity and, and financing and movings when you see a rapid increase in rates. Uh, and, and the housing market is a pretty big driver of economic growth. And so I think across the board, whether it's, you know, wealth effect from stocks and bonds going down, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, energy and food prices going up, or whether it's housing costs going up, I think basically across the board for different reasons, you'll see weaker, you know, discretionary spending. And we're already starting to see that show up in the data. How do you think through like the political incentives on the Fed? I mean, obviously inflation's been a huge issue. It's been like the number one issue for Americans and, you know, heading into midterms, I think that it's playing a role in maybe why, you know, the Fed has been so aggressive. But at the same at the same time, you know, it, it seems like if they continue raising rates so aggressively, they're going to send us into a recession, which is even worse. Um, well, in my opinion, I guess you could make an argue for inflation being worse. But uh, how do you kind of think through those political incentives, especially as you know, we, we head into midterms at the end of the year and kind of this this barbell on the one end, you have the potential for inflation running away. And then on the other hand, you have the potential for a deep recession if they you know don't kind of walk this tightrope correctly. I think people are still kidding themselves. That there's like an easy way out of this. Yeah, you know, it's like, you know, all this inflation's bad. If only they raise rates, we can get back to normal. And whereas like, no, as you point out, you 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 pretty much you you kind of swing back between inflation and recession. That that's the problem when you have supply side limitations. So if there's just not enough oil, for example, uh, your choice is either high inflation or reduced demand for oil uh, through decreased economic activity, which people hate. And usually a recession is more acutely painful for people than inflation, but it depends on on what your specific situation is in life, right? If you're retired, living on fixed income, you'd probably have rather have a recession than have inflation because you're more impacted by inflation than a recession. Whereas if you're trying to get a job, you know, maybe maybe the recession is worse than inflation, right? So so different constituents might have different views. And you know, because most people are not very you know, focused on economic details. They just, they, all they look at is, you know, prices are higher at the pump. My wages, despite the fact that they went up, went up less than inflation, right? So I, I can buy less gasoline. I can buy less food with my wages. And so, you know, when you have that kind of stagflationary environment, uh, it's really bad for political incumbents, you know? And so I, I, I think that that is going to affect the midterm. And I don't think they have a good choice. They can either you know, let inflation run hot, or they can try to decrease demand. And either way, it's bad for re-election. And there's a, you know, there's a measure called the misery index, and it measures unemployment and inflation. Uh, and so it's kind of like if you use that framework, no matter what you do, the misery index is going to be high. You know, if you have low low unemployment but high inflation, that's bad. If you have moderate inflation, moderate unemployment, that's bad. If you have low inflation but high unemployment, that's bad. And really, the only way to have low unemployment and low inflation is to have a lot of supply abundance, right? So you need you need to clear out malinvestment and have better investment uh, in supply side things, and that's not really happening right now. Yeah, for sure. And like, what do you think about 
the kind of end game for the Fed. Like, do you think kind of all roads, and this is like one thing that Preston's been saying, like kind of all roads lead to yield yield curve control in the end? And uh, like, how do you kind of think through the array of potential outcomes for kind of the end game for the Fed? I think all roads lead to eventually having to turn dovish despite high inflation. And that could take the form of yield curve control. That could take the form of, you know, just not hiking rates when they were, you know, as much as they were thinking they were going to. Kind of like how in, in late 2018, they were forced to pivot. And I think they're going to eventually be forced to pivot again, with the, with the difference being that inflation will still be notable, either in terms of the official CPI or in terms of, you know, official inflation plus shortages. Uh, and so I think the end game is basically having to provide liquidity into a still high inflationary environment. And, and that's kind of a balance of payments problems that that's a, you know, that's a highly stagflationary type of scenario. Uh, and I think that's kind of the, the quote unquote end game for this particular long-term debt cycle. Do you think that would be where you'd really just see a massive markup in BTC theoretically, given, you know, everyone kind of saw the, the playbook from March 2020 and what kind of rallied the first off rallied first off the lows and what rallied, you know, the most aggressive throughout the year. Do you think, you know, if you did see some type of dovish pivot, that would be kind of the green light for people to just pile into BTC? You would think so. Markets have a tendency to surprise, but logically, yes. If you were to see the Fed kind of capitulate in terms of the ability to tighten uh, while inflation, while, while currency is still being diluted, uh, I think you could see things like, you know, Bitcoin, gold, silver, you know, all these different kind of like quote unquote hard monies would have their moment in the sun and where you can see that decouple. So a number of equities would also do pretty well in that environment. Ones that are maybe doing fine in terms of fundamentals, but their valuations are pressured. I, I think those would also have a similar jump up. The ones that would still struggle are ones whose business operations are directly impaired by the stagflation. So either they have Chinese supply chains or they're having trouble raising prices as fast as they have to have to raise wages to attract the right type of workers. Uh, and so that's where you can see decoupling, not just say Bitcoin versus stocks, but the specific things. So specific types of assets and specific types of stocks versus other st other stocks that are more pressured. So I, I do think that that would be, you know, essentially a risk on condition, at least for segments of the market. Basically right now, when you're when you're tightening rates uh, and you're specifically you're tightening rates into a slowdown, right? So if they were tightening rates when we had an economic boom, you know, that is, that's not necessarily bad for asset prices. But when you, when you have PMI rolling over and they're still trying to tighten into that because of their mandate, that's when you basically have the dollar go up and everything else go down or just about everything else go down. And maybe some things like healthcare stocks go down less than other assets, but most most things that are not super defensive struggle when the Fed is trying to tighten policy into economic weakness. And so when you when you do have that pivot, I think you can see the dollar cool off uh, and you can see a bounce in a number of things that are not directly impacted by supply chain problems and supply chain problems and wage wage growth and things like that. Makes a lot of sense. Lynn, the, the last thing I wanted to ask you before we wrap up is kind of a non-market specific question, more of a, a personal question, I guess you could say. It's just the fact that, you know, you have such a wide, not only, you know, breadth of understanding of topics, but depth in each of those individual topics that you have a breadth of understanding on. Um, how do you kind of like manage your time to conduct all your research? And like, how do you manage, I guess, your, your work drive? Obviously, you're doing what you enjoy. But how do you manage that with kind of life quality and, and you know, able to, you know, sustain this this deep level of, of research across such a wide variety of, of topics throughout markets every day? Yeah, the number one thing, as you as you alluded to, is passion to, to like what you're doing. So it never feels like work. You're always you're just super interested to see what's going to happen next. Um, and so I think that's the number one thing. You know, as for work-life balance, that has been my struggle for the past few years, just because we've had this unprecedented macro environment. So first, it was figuring out what's going to happen with the economy and the pandemic. Then it was spooling up on on Bitcoin technical details and things like that while dealing with a, a challenging macro environment. And so it's kind of like drinking from the fire hose of of all these different things. And so, you know, I have not had the best work-life balance. I think a lot of people probably have not in this particular environment. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, it's kind of focusing on priorities. And for me, you know, the hardest part is not finding time to write articles and stuff. It's, it's dealing with emails. It's dealing with with when you, when you reach kind of a high a high level of publicity, 
managing that can be can be challenging, even though it's obviously rewarding because you're you're happy that you're touching multiple people's lives. But but everybody has a natural bandwidth problem. You can only have so much bandwidth, and so that that admittedly has been a challenge in the past couple of years. For sure, Lynn. Thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot today, and uh, I'm sure our audience will get an extreme amount of value out of this. Uh, is there any kind of last words you want to leave our our Bitcoin holders with as we kind of head into this uh, unprecedented macro environment and uh, some some sour price action from BTC? So I think I think the key thing is to make sure that your your asset mix matches what your financial goals and your psychology is, right? So. You know, I, I've, I've for a while recommended some degree of diversification, and that means I'm, I'm still overweight to things that I'm structurally bullish on, like Bitcoin. But basically, when you have some, say, cash on the sidelines, you have other investments. I have, you know, dividend-paying stocks, real estate, things like that. Uh, it makes these types of environments a lot less mentally stressful, and it means you can basically take the opportunity to buy some cheap stats, right? So uh, now that can pay off if you're if someone's like 100% Bitcoin. Obviously, the diversified approach will, you know, would underperform that in the long run. Um, but in terms of your actually your ability to ride that very volatile horse is is increased. So you, you you can stay on when you have, you know, your your risk and volatility budget that makes sense for you. Um, and so I, I would just say, you know, make sure you know what you own. Make sure you have it in the allocation that makes sense to you. And then focus on the fundamentals. Focus on you know, whatever asset you're looking at, this is, you know, this is, a, 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 you know, Bitcoin and, and crypto channels. So it's like, you know, if I was talking about stocks, I would say, make sure you understand what's happening with operations, right? If we're talking about Bitcoin, it's make sure you understand the fundamentals. How, why is Bitcoin different from other tokens? Why, you know, what is the structural, what is going on structurally with Bitcoin? You know, what is, what are the, what are the technical details in terms of potential soft forks or, or client updates, things like that? Make sure you understand the fundamental details because the more you understand the underlying uh, the more you can withstand different uh, levels of price volatility. It's an amazing place to wrap it up. Lynn, thanks so much for the time. I know you're in uh, high demand, but maybe we could get you on in the in the back half of the year or something like that. But uh, yeah, really appreciate you coming on. Hope you have a great day. Thanks, you too.